Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Sarah Avon Stover podcast, a space to come home to your inner wisdom. I'm Sarah, best-selling author and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality. And this podcast was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations about all different facets of the feminine spiritual journey. But above all, I created this because I believe that when a woman gets still and quiet enough to hear her inner wisdom, she's able to live her true path in the world. I hope this podcast helps you do just this. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, dear ones. Here we are in June, just a week away from the solstice. Kind of hard to believe it, but I'll take it. And in my hometown here in Boulder, things are teeming with life. These days, the honeysuckles are in bloom and they smell amazing. The creek is full and flowing. The birds are singing in the mornings. I'm wearing shorts today. So summer is definitely here. 
And today I have an important conversation to share with you. It's for women who are childless, not by choice. It's also for women who are child-free, which is not having children by choice. And it's for women who do have children to better help you or them understand and empathize with the women who do not. Uh, Many of you know I am a woman who does not have children, so I fall into that population. We're a a growing population of women, um, just coming over 25% of the population. And we have been very marginalized, very in the shadows for a number of reasons, which we'll speak to today. Um, many of which are cultural blind spots. And that's changing. And in order for that to change, we need to have these conversations to bridge the gap between women who have children and women who do not, to better understand each other's worlds, and just to be willing to talk about this very taboo topic. I was first introduced to today's guest a little bit over a year ago when a friend of mine who's now in her late 40s reached the end of a very grueling several year fertility journey that ended without a baby in her arms. And my friend found today's guest's book incredibly healing, helpful, and validating in just showing her a path forward that would allow her to come to terms with a future that didn't involve motherhood and actually have that future be fulfilling and happy. Today, I welcome Jody Day. Jody is the 56-year-old British founder of Gateway Women, the global friendship and support network for childless women with a social, social reach of about 2 million It started as a blog in 2011 and is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. Jodi is the author of Living the Life Unexpected, How to Find Hope, Meaning, and a Fulfilling Future Without Children. Chosen as one of BBC's 100 Women in 2013, she's a global thought leader on female involuntary childlessness, an integrative psychotherapist, a TEDx speaker, social entrepreneur, founding and former board member of Aging Well Without Children, and a former fellow in social innovation at Cambridge Judge Business School. Often referred to as the voice of the childless generation, and less often but memorably as the Beyonce of childlessness, which I love, she's a proud World Childless Week champion and PLICA ambassador. She lives in Ireland where she is working on a novel and her new Conscious Childless Elder Women project. I loved so many things about this conversation with Jodi, the honesty of her story, how she's transformed her suffering into service, the deep thought she's put into the pain that disenfranchised grief of involuntary childlessness brings, and above all, how we can help those who suffer from it while also educating those who aren't even aware of it. So whether you have children, don't have children, don't want children, 
want children, this conversation is an important one as a woman for us to have as a citizen of the world um, to, to also listen to and contemplate deeply. So enjoy this conversation with Jody Day. Welcome, Jody. It's really wonderful to have you here with us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. And we always start our time together here with a personal check-in. I'd love for you to share with us where you're joining us from today, as well as how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind. That is a lovely way to start a conversation and incredibly grounding. Thank you. I'm, I'm speaking from West Cork in rural Southern Ireland. It's a, it's a cold, rainy <laughs> June afternoon. So it's, it's kind of the end of the day for us here. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I've had a pretty um, burnouty kind of day on small business persons admin. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to kind of moving to a different level with the conversation with you. Thank you for asking. The rain sounds really lovely right now as the summer heat has just started here this week here in Boulder. So I'm just enjoying that moisture vicariously through you. And I know what those kind of days are, mm-hmm. <laughs> the small business owner logistical days. So I'm glad that this can be a, be a respite for you and just a good way to wind down mm. for the evening. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really, really happy to have you on the podcast today. I think this is a really important conversation, as we were talking about before we started recording, on two levels. It's going to be healing and validating, supportive for those women who are listening who do not have children, but wish that they did, so they're childless, not by choice, and also for women and anyone else listening who does have children who do have children and want to better understand how to support those women who don't. Absolutely. And And I think that also includes those women they may know who are child-free, who are childless, not by choice, because often it's difficult to know, you know, exactly what someone's story is. And sometimes it can be incredibly awkward to ask. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it can be a really sensitive topic. Mm. So thank you for, I'm just so appreciative for our, for all that you've articulated in this, in this field. And we're going to unpack as much of it today as we can. And I first learned about your book. It's a wonderful book called Living the Life Unexpected, How to Find Hope, Meaning, and a Fulfilling Future Without Children. I came across this book a year ago when a friend of mine who's who's also childless, not by choice, um, went through a very challenging fertility journey. She's in her late 40s now, but it obviously didn't end well. And she just told me how helpful your book was for her. And I know that one of your intentions with this book is for childless women to not feel so alone and to feel like we have a tribe. Yeah. And you share so many different important perspectives, um, cultural, personal, ones that I've grappled with a lot, being a woman without children. And it felt so good to have those 
those topics really be seen and named and to not be not be invisible anymore. I know we'll speak to a lot of these today, but to start, can you take us back and give us an overview of your journey from trying to become a mother to letting go of that dream and to where you are now? Thank you. Um, And I'm so glad my book has been a support to you. My journey goes back further than sort of trying to get pregnant. It goes back to my childhood. Um, It goes back to growing up in a chaotic, unhappy home with um, a reluctant mother who had had me. I was the result of an unplanned teenage pregnancy. And when I was three, my mother married to give me a quote-unquote respectable home to a man she did not love and who was not a good man and was abusive to both of us. So I grew up in, in a very difficult situation within a context also of my growing up years were the 1970s. So a lot of the second wave feminism was really starting to impact women's lives. And my mum, when she looked at my life ahead of me, could see such a different life would be possible for me than it had been for her. And so I grew up with this kind of this message, both both spoken and unspoken, that having children wasn't necessarily a good thing to do, that it limited your life and indeed in some ways even ruined your life as a woman. That was also the message I got from school and from society. And also this idea that there were other there were other ideas, there were other ways to live my life as a woman, new and exciting ways. So those messages kind of came together in me, plus I had this idea unconsciously that having children meant having my childhood again. So I was, you know, quite child-free, didn't have the terminology as, as a, you know, as a child and as a young woman. And when I accidentally got pregnant at 20 in a, a very happy, serious relationship, I was terrified. I was terrified that this would be, that my life would be over and that I would be repeating my mother's and my grandmother's stories of having children young and unplanned. And so I had an abortion. I don't regret it. It was the right thing for me to do. Looking back on it now, I realise how unconscious I was at 20, how traumatised I was from my childhood how much unconscious trauma I was carrying that I would have had no other opportunity really at 20 than to pass on to my kids, that I didn't. So I I had an abortion and I was still pretty sure that I didn't want children. It was a, you know, it was a a pretty upsetting experience, that, that abortion, as they generally are. So then I met the man later, a few years later, who would become my husband. And I said to him, I don't think I want to have kids. And he was like, okay. And then a few years later, we got married. And as we'd been together quite a long time by that point, I started to realise, and he was part of a a big and loving family. He was one of six children. I began to realise that there were different ways to do family than the one I had experienced. And I began to soften. And I said to him, I think I want to have children. And he was like, okay. So luckily for me, these two incredibly life-changing conversations were, both of them were very easy. So we started trying to have a family when I was 29 um, and nothing happened. 
A few years later, um, I went to have an operation to check that there had been no damage from the abortion. There was no damage. The uh, very avuncular gynecologist said, uh, finest uterus I've seen all week. You lovely young people go off and have lots more sex. And that was it. That was the only fertility advice we got. Um, so I was in my early 30s by then. We carried on trying. Nothing happened. Did every alternative treatment. Took every herb. Stopped one thing. Started another. Stood on my head. Uh, you know, ate every kind of vitamins. Did sort of shamanic visioning, acupuncture. You name it. We tried it. Nothing. You know, every month my period would come like clockwork. So, you know, this put my marriage, our marriage, under a lot of stress. There were other stresses going on as well. I had unconsciously married another very wounded child. And as we both moved, as we both got older, you know, the baggage was being delivered um, and he was struggling with uh, addiction issues. I was struggling with infertility and what I later learnt was codependency, which is the, uh, the child of addicts and alcoholics kind of often go-to place. And um, so our marriage imploded when I was 37, just as we were sort of thinking about starting fertility treatments. So I rushed out of my marriage like the walking wounded, absolutely still obsessed with getting pregnant and um, was very early adopter of internet dating. Um, I was in a shocking state. I shouldn't have been trying <laughs> to find someone else. Um, you know, I had just broken up with the person I thought I was going to be spending the rest of my life with. We'd been together for 16 years. We were incredibly good friends and uh, it was heartbreaking, uh, the breakdown of that relationship. So then I was all mission go to find someone and do IVF. That was my mission. I had no idea that by this part of my age, you know, I was moving into my early 40s, that even if I had found a willing partner, my likelihood of success was less than 5%. The, um, the, the rates of success um, in IVF, ART for women in their early 40s is so much lower, so much lower than so many women realise. And I certainly didn't. I just thought IVF was the silver bullet, that it always worked, because that is the message you get from the media and from the IVF, ART, you know, organisations. So I didn't meet someone. I had a couple of relationships that didn't work out. And at 44 and a half, because those halves really matter when you're under 10 or when you're still hopeful of a child, I realised that childlessness was, for me, was not an inconvenient and overlong stop on the path to motherhood, but it was my final destination. And I fell into a profound and life-altering pit of grief but I didn't know it was grief. So I moved on. I had two really terrible years looking for support, trying to get people to listen to me. Um, I consulted everyone, doctors, therapists, Dr. Google, friends. Nobody would let me talk about what was happening to me. All I would get back were miracle baby stories. I've always looked younger than my age. Oh, you've still got loads of time. You know, I'm 46. Um, you know, you'll meet someone. Uh, that was no longer what I was kind of looking for. You know, why not have one on your own? Have you tried IVF? What about adoption? No thought that perhaps all of these things were something I'd already tried 
or which for difficult reasons were out of reach for me financially, logistically, emotionally, practically. It was always, I was always, people were offering me fixes. No one was offering me empathy. And I didn't know anyone amongst my circle of friends, my acquaintances, my colleagues, or even in wider society who was childless not by choice. I knew of women who had wanted not to be mothers, who were child-free. I knew women who'd done IVF and it had worked. I knew women who had adopted successfully. There were me- but I didn't know anyone with my story, which was the story of trying to come to terms with this life-altering, life-changing, lifelong loss. So eventually I started a blog called Gateway Women a decade ago, thinking, well, if one woman reads this and understands me, that would be great. I got my first piece of PR the day after my first blog was published. I had women from all over the world writing to me saying, how can you know the exact words in my head? I thought I was the only person experiencing this. And it kind of snowballed from there. I was picked up by a lot of media outlets in the UK, including The Guardian, with an article in 2012, which sort of went viral and is still being read. And gradually I began to realise that there were many, many women like me. And for my cohort... Um, born in the 60s in the UK, one in four of us reached midlife without having had children. Now, of that one in four, only 10% is childless by choice, what is called child-free. And that is still the case. 90% of women in the 60s and 70s, childless, i.e. without children at midlife, the vast majority of them are childless, not by choice. I'm just taking this in. It's that, you know, I've read about, I've read about your, your, your journey, but to hear you speak about it just brings more, um, even deeper impact. And I so relate to what you came, what you came across culturally with people wanting to give you solutions, wanting, wanting to help you figure it out, excuse me, even though of course you had already looked into all those options or they weren't available to you and what you were needing was empathy. And I'm wondering, why do you think that empathy wasn't available or isn't widely available? I've been reflecting on that over the last decade. A couple of things. In, I think it was 2013, um, St. Brene, Brene Brown, was in London giving a talk to promote a book And there was a section for questions at the end, and I had my hand up right from the beginning. And in the end, I did get my question in. And I asked her about those bingos, as we call them, those little sort of micro statements that we hear them from even the most empathic people, you know, the why don't you adopt kind of thing. And my whole TED talk is is kind of about them. And she said that in her research, infertility and childlessness had been shown to be the number one area of human empathy failure. Now, this is interesting because actually also Brene herself has a bit of a blind spot around pronatalism. I mean, her work is so important, but she does kind of operate on the assumption that everyone who's reading it or listening it is a parent, can make it quite hard work. So even though she's aware of that, she still has that cognitive bias towards a parented view of the world. I've kind of gone deeper in my thinking about what it is that's driving this behavior. I know this is going to sound, well, perhaps a little dark, 
But I think there is the whiff of death about childless women, unconsciously, for two reasons, and probably more than two. Number one, it is the end of the line for our genetics, as we see it in a very sort of, you know, linear way. So there is that sense of we will be growing old without children and our, our particular genetic code that has taken millions of years to evolve ends with us. So there is that very, very real ending. There is also the sense that I've been thinking about the deep tribal roots of human society, how humans have evolved to become the most dominant species on this planet, for good or ill, not because we have the biggest claws or we can run the fastest or we're the strongest, but because we can cooperate in groups towards a shared goal. It is actually our ability to form a tribe that is at the core of our success as a species. And what does a tribe need to succeed, to grow? People, babies, fertile women. I think the childless woman in our deep history was something to be feared because she could bring about the death of the tribe. A lot of societies that are still tribal, childless women are seen as witches and are even sort of shunned and thrown out of their communities and societies and even sent away. There are some witch camps in Ghana where they might be sent. But interestingly, also the childless woman within tribes, because she was not giving birth, therefore she didn't die, because, you know, childbirth has always been an incredibly risky thing for women. She got to grow older. She got to accrue wisdom because she wasn't bringing up children. So she often became a very important wisdom keeper within the tribe. She often became the midwife and the healer and the shaman. She became revered and feared. So I think there are in our collective unconscious, I think there are some very powerful things that attach themselves to childless women. That I'm, I mean, this is after a decade of thinking about this. I'm only just starting to think maybe this is part of why we are so uncomfortable with childless women. There's something that's something very deep in our shadow, in our deep past that is being touched by it. Yeah, all of that really resonates with me. And again, I think it's just so important to talk about it and to really take a closer look of what, what is really happening here and how interesting that, that Brene Brown just noted that that's, that's where empathy is lacking. And like you said, that she has this unconscious bias of pronatalism as well, even though she, she came across this in her research. Something else that comes to mind is you know, maybe, and I've also thought about is maybe there's also a fear of another kind of fear with childless women um, that women who do have children feel of like that, that we, we represent their, maybe one of their deepest fears mm. of, that, that we're living that out of, of not having children, of not fulfilling that dream. And maybe it just touches something in them, just that, that fear of, of being alone. So I yes. know, yes. I know the work that I do with women around, you know, thinking about leaving a relationship or a marriage, 
the main thing that holds them back is the fear of being alone. And I know that I've encountered that when, when like deciding to leave a relationship is it's a big fear. I think more so for women than for men. Um, It's a profound human fear. Yes. And I think to be a woman who is going to grow old without children really represents the kind of the peak worry of, of, of that feeling of aloneness. Yes. And it was interesting that you said, you know, that we perhaps represent, you know, a fear for mothers. Um, there are a few other things in there as well. I think we also can be represent the path not taken in a positive way as well, in an envious way. We can also hold up to them unconsciously what their life might have been like had they not had their children, the things they might have been able to do, the things they might have been able to dedicate themselves to. And that can be very uncomfortable. I know I've made some of my old friends uncomfortable. It took me a long time to to, to see past my own envy of their lives to realise that there were parts of mine that they also longed for. You know, some of the two, I had too much time, they had too little time. But also one of my very dear girlfriends, who is the the mother of my eldest godson, in very early days of Gateway Women, you know, and my blogging, so sort of 2011, and she was reading my blogs. And she spoke to me one day and she said, I've been reading your work and I can, I can read and I can feel how much pain you're in. And I really want to understand this. And she said, the only way I can really connect with what you're feeling is to, imar- is to imagine my son dying. That's the only way I can contact what it is you're talking about. I mean, I'm, she is an exceptionally, courageously empathic woman. And that really helped me because I thought, OK, from the moment you conceive onwards as a mother, I really understand this. It is your biggest fear that your child will die. Every time they are out of your sight, it is that fear that you are managing in your life. Are they okay? And I thought, well, if that's what I'm asking, if that's what it takes for them to really understand my pain, is it any wonder they don't go there? And is it unreasonable of me to expect them to do so? I think it takes a lot of work to empathise with us it's not. It's very difficult for our, our own mothers to do because, in a way, they can't ever really know what it's like to be a childless woman because then they wouldn't have us. It, it requires a level of kind of empathic gymnastics that it's not impossible, but I think we need to recognise that it can be very difficult. And I think what I'd love to do is to maybe normalise that being hard and maybe to start create a framework around how to think about it and how to feel about it so that childless and child-free women can and their friends and family who are who are parents can maybe understand a little bit about how to speak across that divide and how to understand each other because there's so many misunderstandings in that space that cause so many problems in friendships and families i support thousands of women and most of them have got are either going through a terrible situation with at least one member of their friends or family or are pretty much estranged from them because of this issue. It causes such pain. It does cause a lot of pain. And I, I feel that myself in various ways within my family and with certain friends. And 
I love what you're saying about this like empathic gymnastics and really conflict resolution requires that we take time to understand what it's like to be in another person's shoes and how that needs to happen in both directions. But I think we've been expecting it to be easy. And I think that speaks partly to, you know, the fact as women in our culture, we have been sort of trained to be empathic, to mm. think about other people. And I think when, we, when it comes to this issue, many of many women who do become mothers, and I'm not going to say all mothers because it's unique, everyone's unique, struggle with this issue and their friends are surprised that they struggle with this issue. And I think what we need to normalise is that this is a really hard conversation to have. And we need tools and support and frameworks to help us with it. This is not just about talking about, you know, can you have a look at this mole on my back? Do you think he's having an affair? You know, this is, this is a conversation that gets to the very heart of female identity. And when, when women are standing on opposite sides of that identity and within pronatalism, one on the winning side of that identity and one on the losing side of that identity to some shape or other, it's hardly rather like conversations about race. This is one of those conversations that is full of landmines and we yeah. need to expect those landmines. We need to prepare for them and we need to recover from them more quickly. This is a, this is a tough conversation to have. Yes, and that's so important to name that it, 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 yeah, it is, it is similar to the race conversation and just that people don't want to go there because it's so uncomfortable. And the because chances are you'll get it so wrong. Confronting. Yes, yes, that, that you won't say the right thing or someone will be hurt or offended. And um, there's so many ways that it could just not go well, potentially, which it doesn't mean that it went, you know, mm. that it went poorly, but at least you're having the conversation. But I guess if we could normalize it not going well, yes. so that it didn't feel like a personal failure or that your friend didn't love you or that you were a problem, but that actually, if we could actually just say, this is actually a really hard conversation to have. We're probably going to get this wrong. Can we extend to each other the, the ability to get this wrong and recover? Yes. And because ultimately, like in any relationship, it's conflict brings us closer. Mm-hmm. And that's intimacy. often why a lot of friendships I'm seeing, and I've experienced it personally, um, between women with and without children, particularly between grieving childless women and their friends who've become mother, it, it can be very different for women who've chosen not to have children, because many of them do not feel the grief, and they are not longing for the identity of motherhood. So they sort of, they may look the same from the outside, but they, they're often coming from a very different internal position in that dialogue. And I've lost my point there, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yes, I, I agree that it, we can look the same on the outside, childless and mm. child-free, but on the inside, it's very different experiences. And Yes, I remember now what I was going to say, which is you mentioned about things being left unspoken. And within friendships between childless women and their friends who've become mothered, one of the reasons those friendships often kind of fall apart is actually because the truth isn't being spoken. I describe them because intimacy and honesty are actually aspects of the same thing. 
And what I see in a lot of friendships is that they go on to a sort of intimacy light kind of level where there's a bit of a sort of a dance around what I call the baby elephant in the room where the hard conversation is not being had about how we both feel about where we've ended up. And because the, and the friendship takes on a slightly performative quality, it almost becomes like a kind of replay of the friendship we used to have, but it's not live anymore. And after a while, it becomes incredibly unsatisfying to both people because everyone knows that they're kind of faking it because the energy isn't really there. The, the friendship isn't evolving. It's stuck at a place where it no longer is. And that's because the intimacy is degrading because the hard conversation is not happening. And what happens a lot in those friendships is either they go on pause and our friend who is a parent moves into their parenting life, which is very consuming and busy. And we both accept that it's on pause and we pick it up again at a later date. And maybe then we have the difficult conversation, maybe after their children have left home and gone to college. You know, I'm talking maybe 20 years later, we pick it up. Um, or we, the rent, the, we start to ghost each other. We start avoiding each other and everything just sort of fades away in a very uncomfortable way. And I call this the hashtag friendship apocalypse of childlessness. It is incredibly painful um, because if you are someone who, like me, every single friend you had became a parent, it means that at, when I was grieving, I lost all my friends. And I think they imagined that I had some a kind of a spare group of friends that I was hanging out with and doing what we'd all done in our 20s. I didn't. They were my friends. And they all went on to connect with each other through their children and through their schools and through their incredibly demanding family life. And I was at home on my own grieving. And we couldn't talk about it. And I was incredibly lonely. Yes, I mean, I relate to so much of what you're saying. And it's really, yeah, especially when you're grieving childlessness and all your friends and it's a very lonely and again just the place that I think society really overlooks and like we'll talk about in a little bit it's that disenfranchised mm -hmm. grief Absolutely. yet it's so common you know in your book you you talk about there's so many ways to not be a mother and mm. you you list 50 of them 50 50 ways and I'm just going to read just a few of them um being unable to afford Fertility treatments or further fertility treatments or being denied them, having an asexual or aromantic sexual orientation and thus preferring to remain single by choice, but not being able to arrange to become a single parent or co-parent, being unable to adopt because of being single without meeting the right criteria, having insufficient funds, being the wrong age, being the wrong gender or sexual orientation, being the wrong ethnicity, being disabled, having had cancer, being too fat, not having a garden, being estranged from your own family, et cetera. So those are just a few of them. Mm. It's just so many ways. And again, people just don't, uh, you talk about sometimes it's, um, it's a choiceless choice. Mm. And a lot of times people think that, that you do have a choice, but many times you don't. Mm -hmm. And you name how the stories of childless women are invisible, 
yet how vital it is for one's sanity and sense of belonging to share these stories, especially since a quarter of the female population doesn't have children and we're not in the minority anymore. And yes, it's a, the numbers are huge. The numbers are huge and they're growing. And still, women are judged by our relationship and reproductive status. It is, you you have higher social status if you are married and have children. Of course, there are exceptions and just hallelujah to Oprah for being just a major rule breaker in that way. And this is a result of pronatalism and the fetishization of motherhood. And I would love for you to speak to these two concepts. I know we've mentioned pronatalism earlier mm-hmm. in this conversation, but can you really talk us through what is pronatalism and the fetishization of motherhood? Sure. Well, pronatalism is a word, and, and beware, this is like taking the red pill in the matrix. Once you know about pronatalism, you can see it everywhere. It is the, it is the ideology, which is a subset of patriarchy, which posits that people with children are more important than people without children, particularly mothers are more important than non-mothers, that they have more of a voice, more of a say, more influence in society than people who are not parents. Now, I think it's really important to say that there is nothing wrong with appreciating and supporting and validating the role of parents in our society. They need it and they probably need more of it. But it's the status part of it that is the issue. Because what it is, is it's a, it's a valorizing way of saying this person is more important than this person. This person with children is more important than this person without children. And because this is an ideology we've grown up with, it creates a sense that this is natural, that this is normal. It's not. It's a belief system. It's not gravity. It's actually, it operates on the same principle as sexism, racism, ableism, and homophobia, and all the other isms. It says, this person is better than this person. And that is inherently problematic and leads to gross injustices. So that's pronatalism. You'll see it in, for example, the valorization that comes with the hashtag as a mother. As a mother, I think this margarine is better. What the hell does that have to do with anything? I don't go around saying, as a childless woman, no one is interested, in my opinion, on anything because I'm a childless woman. So why, as a mother, if it's something which has nothing to do with their child, why is that of any value? That is pronatalism at work. Because what that also says is, if you're not a mother, you're important, your opinion is less valuable. Now we move on to the fetishization of motherhood. And this is something I've written about in my work, but no one else has really picked up on it. And I think this is also, it kind of ties into another issue, which is I think involuntary childlessness is kind of one of the unfinished businesses of feminism. You know, the issues around becoming a mother or choosing not to become a mother or delaying motherhood, very much the feminist agenda has engaged with it. But the 90% of women who don't become mothers who wanted, they are entirely absent from feminist discourse, which is very interesting. But the fetishization, like I said, I grew up, I kind of came of age in the 70s. In the 70s, it was not groovy to be pregnant. There was nothing sexy or affirming 
or newsworthy about being pregnant. If you were a film star or a pop star and you became pregnant, you had to go into hiding until after the baby was born. Pregnancy was a private family matter. It was a little bit distasteful as well because it meant you'd been having sex. You wore a huge pregnancy smock and you kept out of sight. No, you know, your, your sort of your star value went down um, as a star if you were pregnant. And, you ha- and you, on the whole, you kept your children out of the public eye. So we fast forward to, okay, I was 18 when the um, Lady Diana married Prince Charles in the UK and became Princess Diana. Not long after that, she was pregnant with her first child and she wore that enormous, enormous navy blue pregnancy smock. We kind of move forward to 1991 and we have Demi Moore on the cover of Vanity Fair, completely naked with a huge bump, a huge sort of pregnancy bump on a very, very slim sort of Hollywood body. That was kind of the beginning of the fetishization of motherhood, of pregnancy becoming something sort of noteworthy that a celebrity could kind of use to their advantage. And if we move forward a little bit further to Beyonce's pregnancy, she practically broke the internet <laughs> with, you know, with images of her as, a, as an African goddess, a fertility goddess. So we have seen in, in my lifetime, pregnancy go from being a private family matter, not at all groovy, to being a noteworthy and celebrated public achievement for women. That's not that it's not a private experience. It's no longer a private matter to be pregnant. It is a sort of public achievement. Now, if we add to this at the same time the growth of social media, the uh, the massive growth of uh, products for mothers and babies and families, so it's also the commercialization of motherhood, the capitalism has really had a big part to play in the fetishization of motherhood. Also, one final point on this is I believe that the fetishization of motherhood is an unconscious backlash against the women's liberation movement. It is a way of overvalorizing motherhood as a way to devalorize the, um, the experiences and opportunities that are now available for women. It's like, get back into the nursery. It's another form of backlash against women. So I think it will shift because on the whole, when we see huge social change, and the social change for women in the 20th and 21st century is off the scale in terms of how much we've achieved in the West for women. We've got a long way to go, but we've never seen anything like it in such a short period of time before. When we see such a big change, usually there is a, a big backlash. And then that backlash settles down and we arrive in a sort of a middle place between those two things. We're not there yet, but I think the millennial generation, for lots and lots of complex systemic and personal reasons, will be having less children. And I think the stigma of being childless or child-free, I'm very, very much hoping that over the next 20 years, that will assume a much more measured tone. I can see that happening as well. And I hope for that too. With all the strides we've made as women in the world, there's something still quite off in the yoga and meditation world. And I'm curious if you've noticed upwards of 90% of yoga classes are all female. Meditation retreats are also predominantly female. 
And yet the main spiritual lineages are still patriarchal, even if many of those are falling apart because of cultish tendencies or sexual abuse. It's still astonishingly rare to find teachings on how women can engage in spiritual practice in safe environments, safe and sane environments, in ways that support our feminine bodies, hearts, and souls. It's time to stop doing and teaching yoga and meditation like men within oftentimes corrupt lineages. Soft is the new strong. Relaxation is the new goal. We need yoga and meditation practices that unite us with our sensual body-based wisdom. We deserve practices that restore our trust in the sacred experience of being alive as women. And to find peace within ourselves and our lives, we absolutely must stop overriding, controlling, perfecting, and fixing ourselves through our practices and instead learn to rest in everything just as it is. This is yoga and meditation for women by women. Welcome to the 200-hour Yoga Alliance accredited women's yoga and meditation teacher training. It's the world's first women's yoga teacher training, and now it's taking place online for the first time ever. Over four three-day weekends from September 2021 to January 2022, we'll practice sacred, embodied, feminine spiritual practice, both in our personal lives and in our teachings. To learn more, Get on the early notification list at sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag teacher training list. That's sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag teacher training list. And be the first to know when registration opens this summer. And now back to our conversation. And I so appreciate all the thought and research and I am an energy you've put into, into all of this. And it just, it's very eye-opening. And I'm curious what you would say, you know, for those who are just starting to open their eyes to the system of pronatalism, what are some ways that people can start to become more aware of it? as an ism that's operating. Mm. I think the as a mother one is a very good starting place. But also when either you or someone you know is denied an opportunity based on their parenting or non-parenting status. So for example, let's say it's time for holiday allocation during holiday season, let's say Christmas or the holidays and it's and those without children are immediately put to the bottom of the list of whether they get that important day off or not and it is seen as a natural and inalienable right that parents get to spend that day the way they want and that childless people have to have second dibs 
Now, that is not fair. You know, children, they chose to have children. You know, why does that automatically mean that their private life is more important than someone who doesn't have children? It's incredibly hard to challenge. That's the thing about ideology because people go, but because I've got kids. And it's like, but if you really, really unpick it, but why? I mean, I get that you want to spend time with your children. I want to spend time with the important people in my life too. And that isn't my, you know, we were both born childless. We're both born as kind of human beings with the same amount of rights. Why do you suddenly get get privileges that I don't just because you have children? And it's amazingly difficult to challenge it because it's you have to open your eyes a long way. Also, it can be incredibly difficult because there is a, a quote that comes from the anti-racism movement. I haven't been able to find the definitive source of this quote. If anyone knows it, I would love to know it. And it is... When you're accustomed to inequality, um, equality, sorry, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And one of the really difficult things about speaking truth to power, and this is pronatalist power, this is parenting power, is that when when childless and child-free people speak up for equality, it's very natural that parents will feel like they're being attacked and also that we're trying to take things from them. But actually what we're asking for is equality and fairness. And actually parents, for example, in the workplace, they need more support, not less. But it shouldn't be at the cost of childless and child-free employees. That is, that is so well said and so important. And I've experienced that in the workplace. Mm. Um, and it's been so incredibly frustrating and even not just holidays, but even evenings or weekends, like being expected to be free to work at those times, whereas a parent would never be expected, would, would be much less expected to, or um, be much easier to be let off the hook from that expectation. Whereas as a, a childless or chi- child-free woman, it can be seen as being like difficult or selfish if you're saying no, I can't, I can't work at those on those days or those times. Because they're all of the systems of belief that underpin both their expectation and your demand are kind of unconscious. Yes, uh, and it's and it's very easy to shame a childless woman back down into into agreeing, because of course. I've done a huge amount of work to become aware in my own consciousness of my internalized pronatalism. You know, I felt less, I felt I was a person of less value. I felt I was a failed woman. I felt I was a defective human being. You know, I felt I didn't have as much value or say in the world as those women who had become mothers. I had to, first of all, I had to challenge all of that in myself before I could begin to articulate this work with any confidence. And how did you, how did you go about doing that, Jody? How did, like, how has that process been for you? I'd say it's been absolutely liberating and at first incredibly confronting. I read a book called The Baby Matrix, which I highly recommend by an American author called Laura Carroll. She uses the matrix kind of metaphor as well. Mm. She is a child-free author. I was still grieving my childlessness when I read her book and I found it deeply confronting. Mm. 
and there are some problematic aspects to it. However, it is still the best book out there currently that explains what pronatalism is. And in reading this book and discovering the way that pronatalism lived in me, the things I had taken that I thought were my own thoughts, but were actually 100% pronatalism, the incredibly powerful decisions I'd made in my life based on this ideology that I actually didn't know was there and that I fundamentally disagree with, was heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking because I realised I'd wasted years of my life believing terrible things about myself and making bad decisions as a consequence about relationships, about careers, about finances, about so many things because I didn't feel I had value as a person because I wasn't a mother. So at first I had to feel the grief for the lost time because I did the best I could with what I knew at the time. But I was sold a really rotten bill of goods with pronatalism and so are mothers. And I think that's really important because what pronatalism says is mothering is the most natural thing that any woman can do, that a woman who doesn't want to have children is unnatural and deviant, that a woman who struggles with motherhood is a bad mother and unnatural and deviant. You know, it's, it makes out that motherhood is this glorious, slam-dunk, amazing experience. It's not. It's a messy, imperfect human experience just as childlessness is. And I no longer think my life would have been better if I'd been a mother or that it's worse because I'm childless. They are both just different versions of the life I could have lived. And one is not better than the other. They're both tricky sometimes, wonderful other times, but they are not inherently of less value or more value. And that's what pronatalism did to me. And when you get that, not only does it liberate us it really liberated me my empathy for mothers for the mothers in my life it really helped me to understand how pronatalism had blind you know blindsided them too you know many women become mothers and then they have realized they had no idea what they were taking on because pronatalism had told them it was going to be easy and once they're mothers it's like the support evaporates they're just meant to know what to do it's outrageous makes me very cross. I, I agree. And I appreciate how that's also something that you named in your book that women with children struggle, women without children struggle. It's just, it's life. No matter whether you have children or not, it's life. And there's going to be challenges and one path isn't inherently better or worse than, than another. And there's also in our, some of our email exchanges, in, in organizing this interview, um, you mentioned that you had listened to my interview, my, I think it was the last interview I did on this podcast with Daniela Thief about the death mother and that you were familiar with her work. And that, I think that that archetype also comes into this because in a pronatalist culture, the death mother archetype goes into shadow. And gets dumped on the childless woman. It is one of the reasons why Part of that fear we were talking about of the childless woman is of the deviant woman, of the dangerous woman. It does all accrue around the archetype of the childless woman. If you look at the fairy stories that we're brought up with, the films that we watch, if there is a deviant or destructive female character, she will be without children. Mm -hmm. Snow White's mother, 
without children. Or she will be an evil stepmother, you know, which is a slightly different version of it. But, you know, the, uh, the witch in Hansel and Gretel, the next door neighbor of Rapunzel. <laughs> um, they're all childless women. And we have to go to the 20th century's most famous deviant, childless, crazy, narcissistic, homicidal, childless woman, Cruella de Vil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, this is the, you know, pronatalism is, it's in the water right, right. from the beginning. And it, it really says that to be a woman without children means you're dangerous. You're not to be trusted. And you're probably going to kill and eat children. So fascinating. <laughs> so fascinating. I mean, I could just, just go on and on talking about this, but I know there's other, there's so many other dimensions of this work that is so powerful. Um, one of them is grief. Mm. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a real um, ally of grief. So much deep respect for grief. I've really been a student of grief a lot these past several years. And I really appreciate how much time you devoted in this book to grief work and the different layers, dimensions of grief that can arise for childless women, especially since it's disenfranchised grief over these invisible losses that are not recognized by society. And, you know, sometimes I see, I see on social media, women talking about, you know, it's, for sure heartbreaking when there's when there's a miscarriage or a stillbirth or um, a child that dies. And at the same time, those of us who have had abortions or who have have tried to have children and it hasn't worked, um, who, who do want to be mothers, but it hasn't worked out for us. It's like, that's, we can't, really well I guess we could share that more publicly but it's not it's not as socially acceptable and that makes grieving harder because other people don't see it other people don't understand it Um, can you speak to us about what your grief journey was like and just where you are with that now with with being a childless woman now thank you and it's it's lovely to to hear someone else give grief the respect it deserves. I'm, I'm a, a huge student of grief. And grief has really transformed my life. And that is its job. And that is its superpower. You know, I talk about grief as a process of identity transformation. It arises in us when something has been irrevocably lost. And that can be a dream and an identity. As you said, disenfranchised grief is a grief that is not allowed. You're not allowed to experience it. You're not allowed to talk about it. But, and if you try to, someone will say, but you can't grieve something you haven't had. Newsflash, you can, and you need to. If that thing was something that you had created your identity and your future around, only grief is going to get you through letting go of that. So for me, when I realized I definitely wasn't going to be having children at 44 and a half, I fell into a black hole of grief, but I didn't know it was grief. I describe it as grief now, but I didn't know it was grief. And, you know, the following year I was started my training to become a psychotherapist. I still didn't know it was grief. And, 
you know, I'd been reading everything, consulting everyone, seeing therapists, you know, every, anywhere I could. I'm a great researcher. I was looking and reading everything. No one named it as grief. It wasn't until I was doing um, a training as part of my psychotherapy training uh, on bereavement and was introduced to the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief model. And I remember, I can actually remember where I was sitting in the training room and like taking all this information in and writing my notes and just really, really getting what it was that our lecturer was talking about and going home that night and mapping out what I'd been learning and the five stages and mapping them to my experience of childlessness. And this unbelievable, I've got goosebumps now, light bulb going off and I went, oh my God, I'm grieving. I'm grieving my childlessness. And I had two, like, two kind of sub-light bulbs went off. Number one, I don't really know how this works, but I know that grief is a process, which means that one day I'm going to come out the other side of this. So there was some hope. Number two, I thought, this means I'm not going crazy. Because anyone who has been through the grief process for whatever reason will recognise that it is cognitively an incredibly confusing experience. Your entire identity is in upheaval. And I had been trying everything to get relief, in a way, to my symptoms. You know, I had not had an easy life. I'd been through a great deal of trauma. I had always managed to find resources and pull my way out of things and work and study and do therapy and whatever, it, whatever was needed to heal. I'd done it. I'd always kind of, you know, found that resource. But nothing that I knew worked on my on this experience of childlessness because it was grief. It needed a totally different approach to kind of anything else I'd ever dealt with. And that was when I became kind of a grief junkie. It was not long after that that I wrote my first blog. Six weeks after that, I gave my first talk about the grief of childlessness. And, you know, here we are a decade later so for me, I lent into grief and understanding my grief and learning to support my grief to save my life. You know, grief kind of saved my life. I, I went very deep into, into arts and literature and poetry and many other things as well, because once I understood that grief was this universal human experience, that from the earliest writings and art that we have, we have experiences of people writing and talking and creating about grief. This is something so fundamental. Later in my understanding, I began to realise that grief is a form of love. That I was grieving so deeply because I loved those children I never met. They existed in my heart. They just never got to be born. But I loved them. I knew their names. I know how old they would be now. They travel with me. They live in my soul. They just don't live in the world. And the depth of love that I have for my children created the depth of grief it took to adapt to living in this life without them, to grow my identity big enough so there was room for them and room for me to live my life. Grief is a beautiful massively misunderstood human experience 
Grief is also the engine of change. We are so obsessed in the West with the bright, shiny side of change. And one of the reasons we find it so hard to change is that all things, all change involves letting go of something. And the emotion that enables us to let go of anything is grief. So even groovy, desired, wonderful change comes with a side order of loss. And grief is there to help us process that loss. But we only look at the shiny side. I think if we could have a better understanding of so many forms of grief, stop seeing it as an event and start seeing it actually as a skill, a human skill. It's part of love. If we could become more familiar, more... more expert in a way, each of us in our own form of grief and our own responses to it and what helps us, I think being human would get a lot easier. So I am so passionate about grief. I gave a lecture at York University earlier this year, which you can find on my website and online, on the disenfranchised nature of childless grief, which is part of a big project they're doing on grief as a human emotional experience. And when they put out a call for what people wanted to know about. Everyone kept sending them to my work. And they said, we weren't thinking of including childlessness in this study about grief. But everyone is saying, we should talk to you about disenfranchised grief. It was, you know, it was a term created by Professor Kenneth Doker in the late 80s. If you go to York University, the grief project, you can watch my lecture there. Um, I could talk for, talk for England about grief. And I think I've got a willing listener in you as well, Sarah. Yes, so yes. I'll stop there. <laughs> I'm just soaking this up. I mean, I love, I love how you say that grief is a skill. It's so true. It, it is a skill. And that it's the engine that drives change. It's the bridge from what was to what will be. And I think that's a good place to, to start to look at now, you know, what the path forward for women who are facing the choiceless choice um, yeah. of wanting to have children and it not working out and how to how to make a life of meaning, how to find joy, how to genuinely feel good about plan B. Mm. Um, and you've clearly done that. And I know you help so many women with that. And like, what are what are some of the steps to start moving in that direction? Thank you. Well, step one is to recognize that you're grieving you know, and to, to learn about that. You know, my book is a great, is a great way to, you know, to understand what it is I'm going through and how it shows up in my life. However, it's really important to remember that grief is a completely unique experience to each person. I mean, when we talk about love or falling in love, we kind of, we're describing something and we each have a rough idea of what that means when we use that term, but our internal experience of what it means to love, to be in love, to be loved is 100% subjective. And so it is with grief. So I think it's really important to understand that whatever I say and whatever grief model you use, it is the map. It is not the territory. Your experience of grief is unique to you. And if it doesn't fit the boxes of a model or my book or anything else, that's fine. You are the expert on your grief. You know, find the resources that speak to you and educate yourself about what disenfranchised grief is. 
you know, read my book, listen to that lecture at York University I talked about, become a bit of a grief junkie. It is really helpful to understand. I mean, how many books about love and relationships have we read in our lives as women? Quite a few. How many books about grief have we read? Probably none. We need to upskill about what grief is. That's, that's really helpful. And if you're someone who takes comfort in a cognitive approach, that can be quite helpful. However, it's not going to be the only one that gets you through because grief is a full body experience. So we're also going to have to look at where grief lives in the body, how we can support our wounded animal body that is in pain during grief, what practices will help us. Once again, many ideas in my book, and it will vary from person to person. Also, you know, grief and trauma can be very linked. So I think it's a really good idea if we are seeking out support and seeking out therapists and practitioners, it's really helpful to find out if they are experienced in supporting childless people because the prejudices of pronatalism are everywhere, including in the therapy profession, in the consulting room and everywhere else. Often as people with um, diff- you know, gender diversity and sexualities and many other ways of being different in the world, often the burden of educating the practitioner falls on us which is so unfair that in order to get the support we need, we often have to explain to people how to support us. But it can be helpful to realise that going in. Send them to my TED Talk. <laughs> if, they're prepared to, well, if they're prepared to invest 18 minutes of their time preparing to meet you, you, you know, at least that's a start. If they're not, you know, jog on. Find the next one. Grief also is... It is an experience that it is a social emotion, like love. It needs the other. I think a lot of disenfranchised grief is almost like an experience of unrequited grief. It's a grief that's not allowed to be in relationship, that you're not allowed to talk about, that you're shamed for experiencing. Grief is a dialogue. It is not a monologue. We cannot grieve on our own, in our heads, in our rooms. We'd all be fixed if we could. You have to find that empathic other to connect with. Now, that can be online. You know, um, the Gateway Women has an online community and it is amazing when you're in a safe space with women who completely get it, when you can write a post and they understand all of the subtexts about what you mean, about the fact that you went for your, um, you know, you went for a pelvic exam and the room was full of pregnant women and the walls were covered with pictures of babies and, you know, and you just bolted They'll get all of the layers of that without, you know, you having to explain it. And that can be really, really helpful. Or the fact that, you know, your, um, your parents have made a will and they've left money to your siblings that have children and not to you. Or all of the many, many ways that this, you know, this experience can shake down. So it can be lovely to meet with other childless women to build local connections. But you do need conscious childless women. Because there will be many women in your social circle in your life who don't have children, who are either child-free by choice and perhaps are not grieving it. But you may also meet many women who are childless, not by choice, who don't want to go there. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to process this pain. They've found a way that works for them, and we respect that, which also involves not talking about it. So you need to find your conscious childless community online in your local area 
with a wonderful therapist. There are many ways, but you do need that connection. I would also say in my book, I talk a lot about, you know, the arts, music, poetry, body work. There are lots and lots and lots of ways to support yourself through this experience. But I'd love to destigmatize it. This is not an illness that is not a character failure. There is nothing wrong with you for grieving. It is a universal human experience. And many cultures have a lot more respect for it than we do. In the Mayan culture, um, grief is seen as a form of praise and tears are a form of prayer. You know, Western culture is grief phobic and grief illiterate. Change that in your own life. Educate yourself and find your tribe. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Jody, I'm curious for you right now. Um, it sounds like you're in your late 50s. Um, and so it's been it's been about a decade since you really faced the, you know, this faith, the reality that you weren't gonna have a child. And so from where you are now, like what are what are the gifts and even challenges of being childless? Mm. I can't speak to the gifts for everyone, only to myself. For me, my childlessness broke me open. It took me apart, my childless grief. It opened my heart to others in a a profound way. The entry price to this level of awareness was obscene. I don't recommend it. <laughs> you know, a dark night of the soul like this. But it has connected me to my heart, to my soul, and to all of the disenfranchised groups in the world. I have a lot more empathy for what it is to find yourself in the out group, not by anything you've chosen. You know, that has really changed me. It's also made me... I mean, people who sort of, you know, see me on video or hear me talk, whatever, would think that perhaps I'm this kind of sassy introvert. Uh, I'm not. Hello to all the INFJ HSPs out there. I am another one. It's given me a passion, a cause to be passionate about. Um, I don't like the idea that, you know, that sometimes people say to me, oh, but you're a mother to thousands now. I don't really feel that. But I do feel that my mothering heart has found a different way of engaging with the world um, through this work. And I'm deeply grateful for that. It has challenged me deeply. It's had to make me a lot braver. <laughs> uh, and to anyone who's thinking of doing a TED Talk, it is terrifying. <laughs> um, so it's been a, an extraordinary gift for me, um, my childlessness. I, I think also being childless actually really suits me. You know, I think it gives me a chance to reflect deeply, to write, to go deep in a way that is very, very difficult to do. Not impossible, but very difficult to do when you're also raising children in the modern world. So I'm grateful for the freedom it gives me. I mean, when I was first childless and one of the bingos is, you're, oh, but you've got your freedom. You're so lucky. It didn't feel like freedom at the beginning. It felt like a dark lake stretching between me and death that I had to cross one day at a time and I had absolutely no idea how I was going to do it. And I had no idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life, this, this whole plan B thing. I couldn't think of a single thing that I wanted to do with my life other than being a mum. And now 
you know, at nearly 57, I've got so many things to do, I can't fit them in. You know, I've got two books that I'm writing. You know, I'm developing a new project for Gateway Women. I'm doing all I can to turn Gateway Women into a sustainable resource that will be there for the next generation of young women, including those young women who could have been our daughters. You know, I have so got my hands full. I think the the biggest challenge for me that's on the horizon is ageing without children. I live with um, with my new partner and his mother, who's 91. It's an enormous privilege to live with someone from that generation. She's brilliant. She's in the best health you could be at that age. But she needs a lot of support. And that support is subtle support. It's um, just before this call, you know, she, uh, her iPad had updated and Facebook looks different. And she couldn't find her way back to where she needed to be in Facebook in order to continue a conversation with a friend. And I was just able to say, I think it's that tab. Oh, right, okay, you know. Something from as simple as that to, you know, the satellite box isn't working. The uh, difficulty, maybe it's too hard to park the car in a small space. Um, to, To complex things like, you know, hospital appointments and keeping up with the relentless admin of modern life and how it's so much of it's digital and being a support to her in a way that enables her to continue living independently. And that advocacy and subtle support is is interesting when people think about, you know, elder care, their mind often jumps to intimate care, to someone who is physically and emotionally very vulnerable. It might be around feeding and bathing and things like that. That is advanced old age. And not everyone needs that, even in advanced old age. But what everyone needs is advocacy and sort of gentle support. And that is missing for you if you don't have children, if there isn't a younger generation around to sort of step in. And so that is a big, it's a big challenge. And it's one that I think most childless women, when they, just when they realise they're definitely not going to be mothers, usually the next train in the station is, oh my God. Who's going to be there to look after me when I'm old? And it's fascinating. I was one of the founders of a UK organisation called Aging Well Without Children. And once again, here comes this difficulty in speaking across the parent-non-parent divide because we were often really pushed back with about our work campaigning for people ageing without children. And that's childless, child-free, estranged from your children, your children have predeceased you. Whatever reason you might be going into old age without children, you know, we were the organisation. And they'd say, but I didn't have my children so that they could be there for me when I was old. I never thought about it. And I thought, well, no, actually, when I was trying to have kids, never crossed my mind either. I said, so I completely understand that's not, was not in your mind. But if that's the case, if you don't want them to be the ones in charge or responsible for your care when you're old, what plans and processes have you put in place to make sure that's not the case? And this could be people in their 60s. Nothing. Unconsciously, they were relying on their children to make those decisions for them and to be there for them. They just weren't aware of it. They had an unconscious cushion that they weren't aware of. And when you are childless or child-free, you do not have that cushion. And you have to face the existential and practical and financial and logistical aspects of growing old in a culture that does not respect or support its elders. That's probably the biggest thing on the horizon. 
And that's the thing I'm working on for the next 10 years of Gateway Women. We had our first decade this year is a new project I'm creating called Conscious Childless Elder Women, which is really about how do we come together and support each other as we age and how do we create networks of advocates and mentors between childless women in local communities. So as my younger members say to me, we're so happy you're doing this, Jodie, <laughs> so that we, when we get there, you know, there will be a network in place to support us. We have all the support we need in us. You know, we're such amazing women. We can do this. We just need a little bit of help to make that happen. What a, yes, what a, what a beautiful contribution. Again, just using your own challenges to, to create and to bring a new form of legacy forward. And so for also from where you are now, Jody, what is your current growing edge? Hmm. I think for me, it's interesting. I, I, I led a masterclass on this topic just a few weeks ago on the impact of childlessness on sexual intimacy. I think for me, the combination of the menopause, growing towards my 60s, being childless, I really feel that on a, on a deeper level, I'm being called to really re-examine what sensuality is, to really once again re-look at my relationship to my body as, as an aging childless woman and what that might mean. And it, I'm, very, I'm very drawn to really sort of post-menopausal challenges, which are not written about in our culture, um, all menopause books, with the exception of an amazing one, which just came out last week from Heather Corinna called What Fresh Hell Is This? All of them presume that the women reading them are mothers. Um, you know, they're often, you don't see them as much, the, so much, but these comments about, you know, as you are in the autumn of your life, your daughter is in her spring and all of this kind of stuff. But I think really, what is it? My, my growing edge is everything that relates to growing older as a childless woman. Um, yeah, and thinking about legacy. You know, Gateway Women is a tree that I will probably never sit under the shade of it. And I think issues of what does it take to be a good ancestor when you don't have children? It took me a long time to realize that I still got to be an ancestor, that I'm still allowed to be an ancestor. And I can feel myself feeling quite emotional saying that because this is quite a new realization for me. So these are all issues about, you know, the third act of life. That's where I'm at. That's my growing edge. And as usual, I will be reporting back. Well, I, I for one, am looking forward to that. And I appreciate you speaking to, to the, all these things related to, to growing older, uh, not only as a woman, but also as a childless woman. I think it's a really important conversation um, to be having publicly and to be creating a community around it. And for, for those who want to learn more about you, about Gateway Women, um, how can people how can people find you? And do you have any anything coming up, any programs or anything that you want to let listeners know about? Thank you. So the Gateway Women website is uh, gateway-women.com. Don't worry if you forget the hyphen, you'll still get there. You can also find me at Gateway Women, all one word, on Instagram and Twitter. 
Um, we have um, these amazing online healing workshops for childless women called the Reignite Weekend. We have them coming up soon in both the UK and the USA um, and Australia, which is just amazing. And um, also to the piece about being an older childless woman and my conscious childless elder women project, um, I, I run these things called um, Fireside Wisdom for Childless Women, which happen in true witchy style, I'm proud to say, on the equinoxes and solstices. Um, we have one of those coming up on uh, Sunday, the 20th of June, so our solstice one. Anyone is welcome to attend. They are, I have to say, getting together a bunch of older childless women to talk freely on Zoom. It's actually enormous fun. Uh, it's quite raucous. And um, this will be the fourth one we've done. There is so much hunger for the role of the childless elder, you know, to be in the presence of your childless elders. The women in the, the NOMO crones, NOMO is my word for childless or child-free. It stands for not mother. So the NOMO crones range from their late 50s like me to their early 70s, which is two of the two of the panellists. So do check that out. You'll find that on my website as well if you just go to Childless Elder Women when you get to the Gateway Women website. So in a way, that's the beginning of my Conscious Childless Elder Women project is the Fireside Wisdom Circles, and you're very welcome to attend. I love it. And... To close, I want to present a choice. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about how to close. And one is for you to read that passage that we spoke about before we started mm -hmm. recording in your book. Um, that spans from page mm -hmm. two to three. And I know that you wrote your book a while ago. Um, so, Or if there's some, some other final words that you want to leave our listeners with. Is there one of those that, that feels more alive for you? I'm very happy to read the passage because this is the second edition of the book and this is the new introduction for it. So I, I, actually, wrote, I actually wrote this quite recently, this introduction, and uh, um, I'm very proud of it, actually. I, I, I wrote it pretty much, you know how sometimes when you're a writer, it's like the first draft is it? It's very rare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a great, was like great pretty introduction. Much a, yeah. Um, so this is from the introduction to the second edition of Living the Life Unexpected. If you go to my website and go to book, you can download the introduction in the first chapter as a free sample. So this is a message from your future hope. Life after childlessness, a fulfilling, happy, meaningful, connected and enjoyable life is possible. I know because I've created one for myself and I've helped thousands of women like you to do so too. It's not easy. It doesn't just arrive. It's rarely what we expect, and it certainly isn't what we ordered. Embracing it takes huge courage, but it is possible. Whilst in no way do I wish to diminish the heartbreak you might be feeling right now, I've been there, it's the darkest place I've ever been, hope has an important message from your future for you. Your childless life isn't a runner-up prize to motherhood. It's a different messy, imperfect human experience to the one you signed up for, but no less valuable. And it can be as meaningful and fulfilling, just in different ways. Thank you, Jody. Thank you for being here. Thank you for this important work. And I look forward to just continuing to benefit and see and receive what you create next. 
Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a really rich conversation and a beautiful way to end my day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking this time out for yourself. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way other women who might enjoy it can better find it. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.